Kirche. It's time to wake up, sir. It's time to do your show, sir. Wake up, sir. to the sea, the sand, the, uh, the air, sir. Thank you, Nigel. The air, the sea, the sand, the air. D-B-A-C. But I don't think I need you anymore. I think I'm ready to move on. I've, I've transformed. I've, I've transformed. I've moved beyond my past. It's, my past is in my past. It's past. I'm ready for the future. Yes, yes. Nigel? Yes, sir. Patch him through. Yes, sir. The man with the hat. Excuse me? The man with the hat. Yes. Yes, this is he. This is Douglas Day. May I help you? The man with the hat. The man with the hat. The man with the hat. Well, if you're simply going to be repeating yourself... I've got better things to do. Mr. Ross, welcome. Thanks, Douglas. The man with that. Nigel. Yes, sir. Dispatch of this gentleman, please. Yes, sir. The man with the... Mr. Ross, how are you today? I'm good, Douglas. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Chapter 7 last week. Uh, very intense. Chapter 6 and Chapter 7. The praying man is the one-eyed praying man is representing death in Chapter 6 and... Chapter 7 going more deeply into the smells and hells and tells and bells, as you put it at one point. Uh, Mr. Ross, a lot of repetition. Thoughts? Well, yeah, I think that we all repeat ourselves in our minds and, and what we say. And there are certain elements that are get stuck in our minds. Um, for instance, well, you, I'm sure that you have already thought about those repeated words. Sizzling. Yep, sizzling. Singed. Yep. Cotton. Yep. So my thought again is that 
as human beings, we often get into repetitive loops in our heads. Um, so I know that there's a point where it can be overdone, and maybe I am overdoing it. And as I go through this, I may take some of the sizzlings out. Um, but as I said, I think it matches up with, especially uh, those that have been through trauma, uh, there's, there's going to be a loop that runs continuously. Mm, yes. Alliteration. Oh, I love my alliteration, I must admit. We were driving, well, it's taken us three years to get through Anthony Trollope's Barchester Towers, but we were remarking upon how often he uses alliteration. And it's, for me, just a wonderfully, almost unnoticed, below-the-radar type effect that you can utilize. And I love internal alliteration. Explain further, please. Well, for instance, I love alliteration. So you've got the L's, but they're not the first L's in the word, but they are echoing back to the L of love with the double L's in alliteration. Mmm. Mr. Ross, what do you have for us today? Well, I've got chapter 8 and chapter 9 for you. Chapter 8's a little bit longer than chapter 9. Um, chapter 8, the three gentlemen have deserted and they're on their way. And uh, these two chapters just talk about what's going on with them as they desert. Very well, Mr. Ross is going to be reading chapter 8 and chapter 9, part 1, Blooms and Blessings, of his novel, Hard Water. Chapter 8. It is done. We three have snuck back from the carnage, skittering from tree to stone wall to meadow to wood fence to stone wall to woods. My two companions, W. R. Goodall and an imposing Harold Augustus Aintree. Yes, two desperate men like myself, Goodall from the city, Aintree from the farm, heading west. Rustled up some corn pones, some side back the day before we dashed on foot, mind you. Didn't want to take no horses, for they'd shoot us on sight, no questions asked, if we were riding high. Tinges of guilt forced me to fall suddenly mute or dissolve suddenly into tears. The first sizzled fat back recoils me, brings a crashing wave of fear behind my eyeballs. And I can't process anything but the smells and sounds of sizzling cauterizations. The stench of singed cotton, wool, and blood. But we have to eat. So I turn and poke the fat back, curl up balls of corn pone with my shaking hand and drop them into the sizzling pan for the hot grease to grab them. We three have humped it fifteen miles or so, a forced march in a day. Left the camp two hours into the skirmish, racked with guilt and shame, but I did not want to die, hounded by trying to desperately detach from this wave of history and go off on our own azimuth. Feared my destiny of certain death. No doubt the next battle would have taken me out of commission forever. The three of us were of the same mind, none of us shirkers. All had killed other men, all had been wounded and host to night screams, fits of terror, the far-off eyes, had smelt the smell of mass decimation and inhumane suffering sit crow-like upon our shoulders and slither snake-like 
into our ears, had had enough, had seen the cards being ripped from the deck in twos and threes and fours and tens and knew our numbers were next and knew the getting was good and the time was now. Trying so hard to lose the guilt and shame counterbalanced by the stone-cold certainty that if we didn't go, then our corpses would be rotting as we speak. Oh yes, we heard the cannon fire from our semi-distant refuge, and we jumped and paled as each booming cauldron of sound imploded nerves within our guts. Necks so tight, shoulders jump at every distant blast. How I now relish the sounds of the blue jays as the sun comes up this morning. Hickory nuts fall, the very last of them, in mid-October. A final, unclung walnut hits the ground and sends me into near paralysis. The chiseling chime of the squirrel's hard teeth on the walnut husk sends me into the steely operating theater of sawing and then dropping the unclung limbs down into tubs dumped into barrows and barrows, wheeled to piles and piles eaten by flames. And if I did not have my companions to kick me and me to be kicked by them to snap us out of grotesque reverie and catatonic shock, I never would have moved and would have perished back in some field altogether. We were so far gone, we had to go. So we eat quickly, still too close to the battle lines to fire our weapons. So Aintree set some traps in this copse of walnuts in order to secure any damn thing that pierces the waiting noose of his silent snare. And so we walk, my right hand buzzing, good all hanging and hopping hung between the uplifting shoulders of his two companions, half of Aintree's ruined face covered by a hank of cotton swathing, all of us realizing we may soon go from cauterizers to cauterizees. Cutting through pastures, semi-silent witnesses of cows, donkeys, horses, crows, hawks, bluebirds, sassafras, bluebirds, this deep in October? Hey-o, what you still doing up here in Virginia when the cold weather is coming on? Shouldn't you be moving further south? Hop and a bob of its blue back and a shine of its brownish-orange underside. God bless the bluebird. Hallelujah. We feel life. We are free. Free from the crushing mess of tensing during battle. The sudden uprush, the ducking, contorting, stabbing, and killing in a frenzy of self-preservation. That horror now modified to moving on and escaping certain death. We come across a dog. Gray, bristly-haired, lanky, starving. It follows us and we let it. When we stop in a copse of catalpas, I feed the starving bitch some of my side meat. Good all and entry, look away when I do, so as if to say, okay, now you've done it, but I don't care. I'm alive. We're all alive, and so is this dog, one of God's creatures with its amber eyes. Comes just close enough to wolf the meat, then retires props itself up in the sphinx position, its nose filtering the fall zephyr, its eyes rotating east to west, then back to me again, my new boon companion, loyalty incarnate, 
have saved her life and she is steadfast. I dub her Duchess. She can eat some of my share. I ain't gonna leave her for the crows, the buzzards, the worms, and rats. Stay with me forever, O fellow survivor. Allow me to gaze more deeply into your amber eyes. Let me relax in that inner amber chamber where there are no more bootless cries. After they'd have healed us, we would have all three been cut down minutes into the next battle, boys. We seen how many men were falling. Pshaw. I guess we signed a contract, but nowhere on that contract did I read this signature signifies I'm ready, willing, and able to die. Nowheres did it say that. Nowheres did it say that. But we did say we'd fight for the cause and follow the orders of our superiors. And we did do that. And we fought hard, and we killed and sent a passel of enemy soldiers to their dying deaths. And we lessened their number, and we collected corpses, and we dug holes, and we did all of that, and that was enough. Enough. We got long lives ahead of us, boys. We are not bad people. We can live good lives. We did our duty. We got nothing to be ashamed of. We killed, which we were ordered to do. We followed our orders for a time, for a time, but then... Holy hallelujah, God came down and said, You will kill no more. You will desist. You will stop committing bloodshed and you will leave. You will sneak away in the dead of battle and therefore you will not be on the end of a trigger that sends another soul to death. You are hereby released from your duty. The only duty you have now is to honor the precious nature of your life and to live it according to the precepts of goodness, peace, and love. And I, your God, will do my utmost to help you not get captured and my utmost to help you not sink into the pits of shame and despair precipitated by your actions. You are young, but you are not dumb. Go forth and prosper. Go to Toronto. Show the Canadians what ingenious Americans are all about. Treat them to your trademark optimism, scent of humor, and joie de vivre. They will welcome you. They, too, are strong and good people. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Amen. H.A. Aintry concludes. That's what God says to me, boys. Let's put it this way. He forgave us even before he gave us orders to go. And that's not just show. He believes in us because we ain't killers no more. Katie, bar the door. Agreed? Agreed. But still feel overwhelming waves of guilt and shame every time the bacon sizzles. I almost vomit. My soon-to-sizzle right wrist. The amber eyes of Duchess soothe me. She seems to understand my predicament. I love you too, Ruth. Farewell. Chapter 9 Goodall has a ghostly stone look of dread on his face. Though the swelling has lessened, his right foot continues to shake and quiver. The yellowing maples and the scarlet ivy and the orange and blazing bittersweet and the harangues of the blue jays do not seem to enter his consciousness. The truth is, all three of us are akin to walking ghosts. I turn to look at my ghost dog following close behind me in ghostly fashion. The things we have seen and the things we have done have placed us in this ghostly pasture. 
Aintree says we are going to the sods, but there may be no sods. Aintree says he has a farm, but there may be no farm. There may be no wife. The truth is, we are like three walking apparitions. The squabbling pair of blue jays may or may not see us. They squawk nonetheless. A small breeze kicks up and the autumn leaves float down with random precision, joining their brethren on wings of air. Squirrels chase one another across the leafy lee. We three enter a primordial wood of oaks, poplars, cedars, maples, pine, elm, hickory, and catalpa. Kaleidoscope of dead leaves floating through the sky. Ain't no reason to wonder.